This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. Geography and Ancient History. Okay, greetings everybody. Um, welcome to, to lecture three. I knew when I was gonna give this lecture that it would be after I had gone um, to Ukraine and back in between. So I thought I would make the subject of this lecture what I'm calling um, geography and deep history, or maybe just deep geography for short. That is the, the way that we think about places and how the way we think about places then has to do with how we apprehend what happens in the world. So the, the, subject, the subject today is going to be naming and placing and, uh, and how the names and the places then affect how we understand events before our eyes, which may seem a little misty and abstract, but hopefully as I get into the geography and then a little bit into the war, it, it will come clear how the deep notions that we have of place tend to suggest, trigger, push us in certain directions when we're confronted with events. So um, what is the place I was going to, right? So in the reading, this is kind of ambiguous. So the place that I was going to, maybe it was Ukraine, or maybe it was the Ukraine, right? Maybe it was, what's the difference? I mean, I, I have already told some of you what the difference is, so don't cheat. But like, what, what is the difference between Ukraine, going to Ukraine and going to the Ukraine? I mean, you probably know that if you say the Ukraine, you'll get disapproving looks from the Ukrainians. But like beyond that, what's the, what's the difference? Like what, between going, yeah. Um, saying going to the Ukraine implies that, that, that Ukraine is a region, uh, a sub-region of something like Russia. Soviet. Exactly. So if you say the Ukraine, it already, it, it, it means, you know, in Polish, you can actually say going to the Lithuania, which you can't say in, in English. Um, but that suggests where this all comes from. Um, it's important to remember that English is not the master language for everything, and that very often the way we say things in English actually comes from somewhere else. So we say the Ukraine because in Russian and in Polish, you can say na Ukraine. Um, yeah, I have, it, I have this on the, on, the, on the sheet this time. You can say na Ukraine, which is something like more like at, right? So you're going to some place which is not quite defined, as opposed to v, right? the Ukraini or the Ukrainu, which means in, in Ukraine, right? It's a place that's like, it, if it's a the, that means it can be contained. So it has a border. It's a defined place, right? Maybe a state, because a state has borders and a state is defined. So if you say na, you're not really talking about a state. And you may be talking about something which is kind of misty and undefined and maybe a little bit poetic, right? So in your reading up to now, like that, the article from Burudnitsky, who cannot be accused of being anything but a Ukrainian, he it was still okay in the 60s for him to be saying, or maybe it was required of him, I'm not sure, to say the Ukraine. And um, while we're on the subject of, okay, so is that clear, the the and the na? So um, it's, very, it's very important if you're speaking Polish or Ukrainian or Russian, right? And so, and, and the, the Poles, it's interesting, the Poles all switched over in the, nine, in the early 90s, right? They switched over. It's very, when I learned to speak Polish, you were supposed to say na Litwia, but now people say, that means, it, that means sort of at Lithuania, but now people say the Litwia, meaning in the state of Lithuania. And na Ukrainia, right, was how I was taught to, to say it in Polish, but now I would say Ukrainia because it's a state, right? And, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and, and the Ukrainians have very clear ideas about this too. Okay. So while we're on the subject, though, you might have noticed that the capital of Ukraine is spelled a couple of, way, a couple of different ways in your readings as well, 
right? Um, what's the difference there? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Yeah, yeah. One is the yeah, one is a transliteration, exactly. One is the, tra so you guys know what transliteration is? There are many alphabets, and when you render from one alphabet to another alphabet, that's called transliteration, um, or transcription, technically. So in, in uh, the, the standard English spelling of the capital of Ukraine for, for a very long time, until very, very recently, in fact, was Kiev, K-I-E-V. And that was, that was a transliteration from Russian. In Ukrainian, it's Kyiv, um, hence the, the English transliteration K-Y-I-V, which is a little bit awkward because there just aren't that many words that, you know, that, aren't, that don't involve like 90s punk bands, which have Y's and I's in front of them, right? The, K, the K, Y-I is not a normal combination in English. And, um, and this, this, this was an evolution. So in, in my early books, I wrote Kiev, K-I-E-V, just because, because I thought this has been standard in English for so long. It's not really such a big difference between Kiev and Kiev. You know, um, it, it, people reading English are just gonna be distracted by this Y and the I together, why should I do it? But then at a certain point, I changed. Um, the last few books, I spelled it with the Ukrainian transliteration. And if you want, you can check and see when the New York Times changes, right? Because the New York Times always does everything right. Um, and uh, <laughs> thank you, that was good. Um, the New York Times always does everything right, but even the New York Times has to change from time to time how they're gonna do certain things. And so you can check and see when they changed from selling it one way to, to another way, because that represents a certain kind of cultural consensus. Um, and so these things change, and the reason why it's interesting that they change is that these things which might seem to be superficial, like language, are actually very deep, because they're the things that, that you read and you take in, you don't, call them in, you don't call them into question, and then they may form how you see the world um, when you're confronted with something surprising. Okay, so, you know, the, the v and na, or the the, is it a region or a country? Kiev or Kiev, you know, is it Russian or is it Ukrainian? It's a pretty, you know, a pretty big, dis and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, what is, what is actually normal in English? Because, it, this is really interesting because you might think, let's say you're, I'm assuming, you know, many of you are native English speakers, all of you know English, or you wouldn't be in this class, or you're in this class doing some kind of weird meditation that involves listening to a language you don't understand, which is cool. You'll probably pass anyway. Um, the, uh, I'm assuming if you're doing that, you're taking a pass fail. Um, but, but, you know, you might think, you might think, well, in English, like we all have, we have a certain distance from all of this, there's a certain objectivity, you know, whatever it is in English is somehow just neutral, right? But it's not. It's not, it, it, what, what it is in English has effects too, very much so. Um, and what it is in English is also subject to change, as we've seen in both of these examples, right? Just in the little span of time between when your readings start and now, the, the basic uses in English for both the country and its capital have, have changed. And, you know, you're presumably, like, if you have kids, which I know that none of you are thinking about now, because when you sign to go to Yale, you promise not to get married and not have kids, I know. But, the, but when you have kids, presumably they will think, K-Y-I-V is totally normal. Maybe you already think it's totally normal, right? Um, and they'll think, they, it will not occur to them that it might have been some other way. But these things change all the time. Okay, now, the, this notion of deep geography also has to do, so I've talked just about of words and, 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 and letters. It also has to do with narratives, right? So a story can tell you where you are, right? A story can tell you where you are before you get there. And this, this occurred to me during this trip because I, I was talking to a bunch of American diplomats and we were pondering, I mean, just to put it very briefly and brutally, we were pondering why every American gets everything wrong about Ukraine all the time, 
right? Like that basic question, which you can't like you can't help dealing, you can't help asking with respect to the war because even the supposed the people who are supposed to know what they're talking about were totally wrong. I it's a luxury for me to say this because I wasn't, but in general, like everybody was totally wrong about everything with respect to the war, right? Um, the Ukrainians are going to lose after three days. You know, okay, they can't possibly fight back. They can't. Okay, they're going to lose. It's a stalemate. Blah blah blah. Everything that the consensus has said in the U.S. has been wrong the whole time, and you can't kind of say, well, this is just a matter of like lack of military analysis or whatever. No, there's something else deeper going on, and we were sort of trying to ponder that together, and I think it has to do with the deep narrative. That everyone is taught, um, because the, the deep narrative that everyone is taught, all all these diplomats were taught it too. Everybody who studied East Europe, almost everybody, not in this class, but almost everyone who studied East European history in the U.S. has the narrative which says there was Kiev, and then you know from Kiev somehow there was Moscow. There was some kind of transfer, and the thing in Moscow is the same state as the thing in Kiev, even though that. You know, I'm not going to say even those. I'm just going to try to tell the narrative. The thing in Moscow somehow inherited the traditions of the thing in Kiev, and therefore the thing in Moscow fulfilled itself when it actually incorporated Kiev in the late 17th century. That was somehow natural. That's part of the destiny of this place, and it's normal that Moscow and Kiev will be together forever. And in some way, it's all Russia. It's all it's all Russia.、Um, so I, I didn't do a good job with that narrative because, frankly, that's not. What I'm being, you know, that's not my job here to do a good job with that narrative. But, but that's the basic narrative, right? And but the point is that everybody who has ever studied this has that narrative. And if you have that narrative, then it makes you think that Russia's a real place. And what is Ukraine? Because in that narrative, nothing called Ukraine ever appears, right? So there must be something suspicious about Ukraine. Um, it must be somehow invented, or somehow marginal, or somehow provincial, or, or in some way questionable. Whereas nobody ever questions Russia, right? No one ever. I mean, is that wrong? No one ever questions that Russia is a real place.、Um, no one ever questioned the Soviet Union was a real place either, and then like one day it ceased to exist, right? No one ever questions that Russia is a real place. There's a non-zero chance that the Russian Federation, as we know it, will cease to exist. In fact, there's a hundred percent chance. That every, I mean, that, that's that shouldn't. No, there's a hundred percent chance the Russian Federation will cease to exist. All all states that have ever existed have ceased to exist, right? There's also a hundred percent chance the United States of America will cease to exist.、Um, probably not before you graduate. Don't worry, you know. But、um, but unless you're freshman, in which case, yeah, not so sure.、Um, but all states cease to exist, right? All so so just I mean as a, so any narrative about how something's going to be around forever is obviously going to be wrong, but but my point here is that as I was sitting with you know with my fellow Americans and thinking this over, it kind of seemed clear that the reason why they Americans people generally have trouble imagining that Russia could lose this war to Ukraine has something to do with the fact that Ukraine isn't quite real <laughs> in their minds and Russia is and they wouldn't say that directly. But but the the, narr the narrative which you're taught when you're younger is going to be there for you always, right? We only we live in time in one direction. Our history education happens in only one direction, and the things that get in first tend 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 to stay, right? Now we don't like we don't have to spend a lot of time challenging that narrative. You know that's not really that's not really the point here.、Um, the, the 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 point though is that just if you believe if this is your deep geography, that it was that this was always Russia. And then, it, and then, if it wasn't Russia, that was some kind of divergence, right? If that's the way you see it, then naturally your your brain, when you get to thinking about the war, of course you're going to think Russia is going to win, 
because this was always Russia and Ukraine is some kind of exception. Yeah, do you have a question? Oh, sorry, okay. Um, and uh, you know, always is a very powerful word, but it's also a very comfortable word. We really like always. We really like for things to have a kind of durability, continuity. We like for things to be, we like for there to be something in the world where we know its shape and we know its shape is, is, is permanent. And it's, it is a little disturbing when it turns out that none of these things that we think are permanent actually, actually are. Right? That's a little disturbing. And so Russia has made it into the level, I think it's fair to say, you can correct me. I mean, I realize you guys are like young, you're from a different century and all that. But, um, but Russia has made it into the realm of the kind of calmly permanent, right? Um, it's up there with, I don't know, I don't know what, Star Trek, hydrogen. It's like things that have always been there, right? Um, whereas Ukraine has not. For, for you know whether that's fair or not, it's probably unfair. But I think that I think that's I think that's the case. And we just don't like it when something which is always is called is called into question. Um, so you know, always is very comforting. And of course, Russia itself, that word Russia, in a deep geography, it's not clear where the borders of that Russia are. I mean, in, in during during this war, there's been a lot of really quite let's call it ambitious Russian propaganda, you know, they're, they're like, they're, they're now, they're now, um, they're now plakati, what do we call plakati? Uh, no, wrong. Um, the thing, billboards, they're now billboards, I mean, that's true, but like billboards, you got points for speed though, both of you. Um, and it wasn't wrong, I was just thinking of a different, like billboards, now billboards in Russia which say Russia has no borders, which is one way to think about it, right? No borders at all. but. Um, but, the, but, the, but my point is that when we think of Russia, we could be thinking of the Soviet Union, we could be thinking of the Russian Empire, we could be thinking of a lot of different things with very different borders. And since, since the borders change, it's a big place, um, we, it, we're not surprised to learn that a lot of things are Russia, right? A lot of things turn out to be, turn out to be Russia. Okay, so, um, so you get my point. Like, there is a reason why Basically, everybody except the military historians kept saying Ukraine is going to lose. And one, one of the puzzles of this class, if you want, is to think about why that is, right? Why, why would everyone be wrong? And the suggestion that I'm making is that, th that this thing that I'm calling deep geography has something to do with it, with the, the words, the spellings, the narratives that indicate to us what is real and, not as, and what is not real before we get into the empirical world. Because as, as I suggested before, if you read, you know, there, are only, there aren't that many military historians left, um, but if you read them and they're boring threads about logistics and all this stuff, it, like, they don't know anything about Russia or Ukraine, but they know where the rivers are and they know where the bridges are and so on. And they've done a much, much better job than the people who are supposed to be Russia specialists. Why is that, right? Like, why is it that not knowing anything about Russia seems to be an advantage in predicting who's going to win this war? And I'm so I'm, you see what I'm trying to suggest that the, if you if what you know about Russia has this kind of metaphysical underlay, which is actually then push, you know, pushing the empirical evidence around, that's going to be a problem for you. So basically what I've done so far. Yeah, go for it. Is there something distinctive about America that makes our narrative wrong? Like, is there, is there a different European because of the proximity to the area? That well, in Poland, there is. Yeah. <laughs> in, po in Poland, there is, like if you're, like all the sort of stuff that I'm calling anti-colonial and so on, like the Poles and the Ukrainians have been making these arguments for a long time. But as soon as you get west of Poland, no, it's the base, it's the same story dominates. The Kievan, Kievan Rus somehow becomes Moscow, it's somehow all the same place. 
when Moscow takes over Ukraine in the 17th century or in the 18th century, that's somehow a fulfillment, even though Kiev and Moscow have been apart for 500 years, even though Kiev has never been ruled by Moscow before, somehow it's, that's a natural fulfillment of history. 500 years is a long time, by the way. Um, so that, but that basic story is dominant in Germany and France and in, and in England. It's not just us. Um, it's a story, okay, I'll get to why it's an ironic story. So, so, so what, I, what I've been doing so far is I've been making a case for how important literary history actually is, like how important culture actually is, and how important cultural critique can be, like being aware of the narratives and the words and so on can help you to understand the politics, or being aware of the culture can help you understand political judgments. Um, what I want to move on to now is, um, is, is just a word about how you then address this, right? How you begin to talk about it. And one way that we'll be talking about it in this course is uh, the very broad approach of colonial history, where one of the first things that you do if you're doing colonial history is you, you question the, new, the, new, the neutral claims of knowledge, right? You, you, you question whether the things that have been laid down might in some way have been laid down um, with, with an imperial spin, which has to then be, which then has to be queried, right? So the, the, if, you, if, you if you're doing colonial history, you're taking for granted that there's, that the libraries have been organized the wrong way, right? Or at least they've been, I won't say wrong, but they've been organized a certain way. Um, that, that even the language has been organized a certain way so that you don't see some things that you might otherwise see. Now, these are arguments that many of you might be more familiar with in an American context, right? Where you would say that in American history, one has to be very careful because American history has been laid down in such a way that you might not see, for example, um, the history of enslaved people, right? That's probably a very familiar argument, but that's a generic anti-colonial argument that can be applied in, in lots of other settings around the world, including in Russia and, and in Ukraine. So, the, the, in colonial history, you're asking yourself to question the, the, the apparent neutrality of knowledge, including the instruments of knowledge, languages, spellings, maps, library organizations. Um, and you're also asking yourself, can people change halfway, right? So if it really, if it has been, if these concepts have been laid down into us and we've accepted them as neutral, are we actually capable of catching ourselves halfway, which is a very important history question. Because if it's not possible, then we might as well give up on history because we all have a lot of legends laid into us, imperial and otherwise. And you know, getting to history is a matter of being, of being able to say, huh, well, maybe some of the things I'm committed to, maybe not, maybe not, might, might, might not be correct. Okay, so um, I want one of you to figure out how many lecture classes there are in Ukraine, on Ukrainian history right now in the US. Because I'm, I'm gonna say one, and I want you guys to prove that there's another lecture class going on in Ukraine in the United States right now. I'm, I'm going to guess that like despite the fact that you know it's in the news and so on, I'm going to guess there's only one, right? And that's sort of, that, that would be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, would you go that far with me? I'm going to say one, maybe two, right? Like full-on lecture classes that are just about Ukraine. Not classes where somebody mentions Ukraine, right? Or Ukrainian poem is assigned, but a full-on class about Ukraine in our country of 300 million people, you know, in our fantastic higher educational system, I'm gonna go with one. Um, and uh, I'm gonna be surprised if it's more than two. So somebody figure that out by, by next class. Because it's an example of what I'm talking about with the institutions, right? Because no one would disagree now with the proposition that something important is going on in Ukraine. If something important is going on in Ukraine, that means something important could go on in Ukraine. If something important could go on in Ukraine, why are we so woefully unprepared for that, right? There has to be an answer to that question. It has to go somewhere, it has to go somewhere deep. Okay, so if you're doing colonial history, 
Um, you question the neutrality of knowledge, you, you, and you, you, you look for ways, and one of your methods is you look for ways for the colonized to talk back. Not that they're right, by the way. Right? It's not about how like, one is right and the other is wrong. That would be oh too simple. Right? But rather, when you hear how the colonized talk back, it then, it then it shakes you a little bit and gets you thinking about how you might do things another way. So um, I was in Kiev for several days, and I stayed up late watching, because you know, I didn't have anything else to do. Um, actually, I had a lot of other stuff to do. <laughs> but but I, I stayed up late watching Ukrainian television, because it's, I find it like, just really ethnographically interesting to soak in the news you know, in, in, in a country where something's going on. And they have ways of talking back. Later in the semester, you're assigned an article about Rashism um, that, I, that I wrote. Rashism, to make it very simple, is a kind of uh, merger of the words Russian and fascism. And Rashism, or with, uh, with the, the personal noun Rashisti, has become a pretty standard way of referring to Russians who were invading Ukraine. To the, so standard in the sense that the newscasters use it. Right? They don't say Russia. They rarely say Russians. They almost never say Russia. They occasionally say the Russian Federation. Um, but usually they say, they usually talk about the Rashisti and they talk about Rashism. And when they refer to the country, um, they're, they're, calling it, they're calling it Moscovia. Right? Why, why, would it, why would you call it, besides the fact that it sounds sort of cool, why would you call it Moscovia? Go for it. You're breaking the link between Russia and Kyivers. Yes, you're taking the Rus. So, so Russia is called Russia, right? And which is a name that Russia took in 1721 when the Russian Federate, when the Russian Empire was founded. If you call it Moscovia, you're taking away the, the the historical reference to Rus, and you're also you're also kind of naming it as a smaller country than it is, and you're suggesting that its its boundaries might have a certain flexibility. <laughs> you're also kind of suggesting that when you say when you say Moscovia, right? So, the, so the, the call and the other the other phrase they use a lot as a euphemism for Russia, is aggressor state. Right? They say aggressor state, so, which is like neutral. It's the aggressor state, but it's also not neutral because you're suggesting that that state might always be an aggressor and so on. So the next thing that I want to talk about um, in this notion of, 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 uh, of, of geography and deep geography and deep history is I want us to think a little bit about this late 20th century, early 21st century notion um, that uh, of globalization and the idea that globalization has made all of these kind of careful, all this kind of careful work that we've done in the first few lectures of this class irrelevant. Because what globalization does, this is the argument, right? What globalization has done is that, to use Thomas Friedman's phrase, the, it's flattened the world. It's, uh, it's kind of made everything the same everywhere, right? I mean, his example, one of his examples was airport lounges, which frankly I don't think is a great example, not least because they're really different. I mean, the ones in America are terrible, for example, like that. I don't think. <laughs> okay. Um, the, uh, <laughs> but, 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 it, but, it's, but I, I, I give it as a joke in a different way, because of course, airport lounges is not a representative experience, right? It's not. So the fact that airport lounges might be similar or McDonald's might be similar doesn't really take you very far. But what I'm really going for here is the overall argument that since the end of communism, something like that, since, since the rise of global, the rise of global trade, the second globalization, uh, things are basically interchangeable. Places are basically becoming more like other places, right? Um, and, and, and people are also becoming interchangeable, 
because there are only so many ideas in the world and we share them all instantly through the internet, goes the idea. Therefore, we're interchangeable, right? Maximus and I are interchangeable, Genya and Maximus are interchangeable, so it doesn't matter what TF you have, actually. We're all basically interchangeable because we're all sharing ideas all the time and there are only so many ideas and we're sharing them instantaneously. So maybe you don't have the idea I have right now, but you can have it instantaneously. So this, this, is, this is the notion, right? So people, so in this, like, in this utopian view, um, space doesn't really matter, right? Traveling distances doesn't really matter. We can, we all, because we're all really kind of all the same place in the same time. Now, the, ob the, the, the objections to this are pretty clear. One of them is, does information really travel, right? Um, in the world where we are, um, well over 90% of the supporters of Viktor Orban in Hungary believe that uh, Ukraine is at fault for this war. And why do they think that? They think it because that is their, that is their information space. What Russians and Ukrainians think about this war is obviously very different. And it's not just because they're Russians and Ukrainians, it's because they're in different information spaces. You know, what you and your cousin Harry may think about Donald Trump might be very different. And that might not just be because you and your cousin Harry have other differences, it might be because you are in different media spaces. One could argue that what's happened actually is that information space has created more differences or it's created even firmer boundaries than existed before because the internet arguably actually travels less well than a newspaper does. If I can print the same newspaper all over the world, I'm, you know, as used to be the case, uh, then I may be actually doing better than I'm doing if I'm, you know, if I'm, in, if I'm the Washington Post and I can't get my stuff out in China today, right? So, so information doesn't, maybe doesn't really travel, and it may, you know, and can we really go everywhere, right? I mean, this is obviously on my mind because it took me 35 hours to get back from Kiev, um, but it, there is a certain cost in going places, and when, you, and when you take your body certain places, it does have an effect on how you see things. There's a difference between being in a place and seeing it on, and seeing it on a screen, right? If you, if you go somewhere and you, you know, and that involves passports and changing the gauge of a railway, or it involves going through checkpoints, um, that is different from just clicking on a picture to another picture to another picture, right? Um, it, changes, it changes the person. By the way, um, one of the things I found really interesting on the checkpoints is it has to do with this overall question of language and where you are and how language suggests where you are. In the, the, the Ukrainian soldiers generally still speak Russian. It's not, that's not really a big secret. But at the checkpoints, if you're at a checkpoint, the way they greet you is they, speak, they, they, they hit you with a really flowery, friendly Ukrainian, right? And as long as you can hit them back with a really flowery, friendly Ukrainian, you're basically through the checkpoint, right? Because there just aren't that many Russians you know, who, can, who can do that. So you make sure you show your document, but the language itself is the first checkpoint, which, I, which, is, which, is, which is kind of interesting. But where I want to really go with this is that in, in historical terms, it really does seem to matter how far people get at certain times. There really do seem to be historical turning points where non-interchangeable people get or don't get to very special places and that it seems to matter. The big classic example that we'll get to in about a week in our part of the world is the, the Mongol invasion of Europe, right? Um, the Mongol invasion of Europe, well, when did the Mongols reach Paris? I, I see, yes. They haven't yet. Yeah, good, good answer. I like that. I like the yet. I like, that way, I like the way you're holding the future open for good things. That's awesome. Uh, that's really good. So, 
Yeah, so in, so in the early, in the late 1230s, early 1240s, the Mongols aren't defeated by anybody, right? The Batu Khan is not defeated by anybody. Um, we'll talk about this. They have, you know, they have the stirrups, they have the, they have the, they have the encirclement maneuvers, they have the calls. Um, they're not defeated by anybody in Europe. They, they, destroy, they destroy every army, European army they touch. Uh, and that includes, that includes Kiev, um, but it doesn't include France, um, not because they couldn't have done it, but because at a certain point the Batu Khan has to go back for the, a succession issue, right? Because the main Khan has died. And so, but if the Batu Khan gets to Paris, I mean, arguably no Renaissance, you know, no age of exploration, probably some other part of the world carries out the age of exploration, not the Europeans. And it's a very, very, very different world, right? And that's just a matter of one person dying. If one person had died a year later, we're probably looking at an extremely different world. Um, not to, you know, not to say that the moment where we're in is quite comparable to that, but it does strike me as being significant that, and of course you can't help but think about this when you're standing in the middle of Kiev, but it seems quite significant that Russian soldiers do or don't get to Kiev in February of 2022. Um, and it's really close. It's really close. Um, you know, the, 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 Russian, the Russians land in the Hostomel airfield, and their plan is to land there, drop the paratroopers, drop the special forces, go in, gather up the elite, kidnap them, probably exterminate them. And that's part of the plan to take over the city. And they get to Hostomel, um, which is only about 35 kilometers, 20 miles from the center of Kiev. They get that far on the first day of the war. They get that far. Um, and the, but the Ukrainians stop them. There's a, there's a terrible battle around Hostomel and it goes on, but the Ukrainians stop them. Um, Bucha, um, which you've probably heard of because of the atrocities. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I, was in, I was, saw Bucha very briefly too. Um, it, 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 and it was also very, that was also kind of interesting because there, the air raid sirens went off in Bucha. And, um, you know, I was, with, I was with the Ukrainian general and he was like, well, you know, we can always go to the basement of the church if anything actually happens. Um, the, the Bucha is basically a bedroom community. It's, you know, it's like t 28 kilometers from Kiev. It's a suburb. Um, Irpin, um, where so many buildings are destroyed, it's like a beautiful parked, it's like, it's, it's a really nice place. You might want to, you know, if you, if you were like going up in the world and you want to have a nice place and drive, you know, commute, right? The American dream. Um, if you wanted to do that, Airpin would be a wonderful place to go. Now it's, it's, it's all shot up and there's a huge pile of burned cars and their building after building was destroyed by Russian tanks as they were retreating. Um, that's like 20 kilometers from Kiev, right? And it's the same is true going the other direction um, across the Dnipro towards Chernihiv. The Russians got very, very, very close to Kiev, but they didn't get to Kiev, right? They didn't get that little difference, right? Those last, those last, 15, those last 15 miles of physical geography would seem to make a huge difference. Um, and the way people, like the way people react to the war also has a great deal to do with how they understand the geography around them. So for example, like pretty, I, time after time after time, people who lived in Kiev or other cities would say, well, what I, when the war started, I should, go to the, I should go to the villages. I should go to the suburbs. Right? That's a natural thought. Like they're going to get to Kiev, you know. Um, I should go to I should go to my dacha. I should go to my grandmother's. I should, but but or I, sh I should go to my you know I should go to my second house. But it was the villages actually that took the punishment, like time and time again. Um, you know, 
people from Kiev went to Bucha and Irpin because they thought Bucha and Irpin would be safer than Kiev, which turned out not to be true. Um, a, a, a friend of mine who lives close to the Dnipro, you know, the, the Dnipro runs through Kiev, right? And so, and, and a friend of mine assumed that, you know, that the, the Russians would get as far as the river and the Ukrainians would then blow the bridges and then, you know, you will have one direction to flee. So in moments like this, you're, you're, you're thinking in terms of, you're thinking in terms of, of space. Um, I, I wanted to go someplace besides Kiev and, and Bucha and Irpin and Hostomel. Um, I wanted to get outside of Kiev Oblast. Um, and so I went, to, I went with a friend to Chernihiv and Chernihiv Oblast, which is just basically due north a little bit, a little bit east. Um, Chernihiv is a fascinating city. We're going to return to it. It might have been on one of your maps. The reason it was on one of your maps is that it's an old city, right? It's 500 years or so older than Moscow. Um, it's been there for a very long time. It's ancient. And it is an ancient center also of scholarship, um, of, of, of theology and of scholarship. Along with Kiev, it was one of the two great centers of religious and intellectual in general disputation in, in, um, in what's now Ukraine. And the reason why, and one reason why I have Chenif in mind is that this whole story, you know, the story about the Kiev and the Moscow and how it's all one place, that was actually invented by a guy in Chernihiv. It was invented by one person. Like we now, we all believe it. Like it, all, it has this incredible effect on, and the reason he invented it had everything to do with geography. In the, war, in the Cossack Wars of the 17th century, which don't worry, we'll get to. In the Cossack Wars of the 17th century, um, at the end of it, there's basically a stalemate between Poland, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Moscow. And uh, the stalemate is codified at the Treaty of Andrusovo in 1667. And according to that treaty, the territory on the east of the Dnipro was going to be Russia, and west of the Dnipro was going to be Poland. It was a little unclear what that meant for Kiev, because Kiev was on both sides, but eventually Kiev ended up being part of, being under control of Moscow. So, and that meant Chernihiv was as well. So, Kiev and Chernihiv, which are these major centers of European scholarship and thought, are now suddenly under the control of Moscow, which has no centers of scholarship and thought. Um, and uh, no, that's just a statement of fact. I mean, there, are, there, aren't, there aren't any universities, there aren't any academies in, in, the, in Moscow at that time. So when, and so, so Laza Baranovich was a very intelligent guy, um, one of the great theologians of his time and um, used to enjoying a certain amount of personal influence, it should be said. And when, when, when Chernihiv and Kiev fall under Moscow, he makes a play. And like, see if you could think of a play which is as good as this play. He says to, to the fellow Orthodox clergy um, in Moscow, he says, you know what? We're actually all one country. And the history of your country, that one in Moscow, it actually begins in Kiev. And this was news to the people in Moscow. This had not occurred to them. This was not their story of themselves at the time. But Baranovich said, your history actually starts with Kiev. And of course, why does he say that? Because that makes Kiev really important, right? Because that's, so suddenly, Ukraine and Kiev and Chernihiv are not just places that got conquered by Moscow. It turns out they're the beginning of the history of Moscow. And that dignifies him, and it dignifies his collegium, his school, it dignifies Chernihiv, it dignifies Kiev, right? That seems like a pretty good play. 
and it worked for a while it worked um, but but you can then but then imagine what happens next right what happens next is that eventually the russian clerics say take over the story on their own and they say yes okay that's true but and that, but after a couple generations they pick up all the tricks that the Ukrainians use to argue. They learn the languages too. They start reading the Western religious literature themselves. They learn about theology and disputation. And so they take the argument and they make it their own. And then by the 18th century, it becomes a secular argument, no longer a religious argument, but a secular argument. Um, it's after, when the Russian Empire is formed in 1721, it's called the Russian Empire for this reason, right? And then when Russia invents a secular history of itself in the 19th century, it's this story, right? But this story happened because of this guy who, if he drowned under his horse, or as you know, people tended to do at the time, right? If like something had happened to him on the way to writing that letter, um, you know, maybe that story would never have arisen, right? And then maybe we would all analyze the, this war a little bit better than we did. And so again, I'm just trying to make the point that where a certain person is at a certain time and place may matter actually a lot. Like you couldn't actually trade Lazar Baranovich off for anybody else. He wasn't interchangeable. And those circumstances, you know, that Chernihiv fell under Russia at that particular time were, were, very, were very specific. Okay, so Chernihiv itself was bombed in early March. Um, it was the, uh, the, I was told by the locals, I haven't checked this yet myself, but the, the guy who was actually doing the bombing runs was himself born in Chernihiv, which raises the question of how you can believe different stories about the place where you're, where you're, where you're from. Um, you know, when, when I was in the rubble, I was in, I was in, there was one really terrible bombing run which destroyed or partially destroyed four major apartment buildings um, in one neighborhood. And when I was there talking to people, I was struck by a few things. Um, like how, I mean, just, that this place for young people, like there was a kid there who was collecting books, you know, he's collecting books, he had a book collection and he found an iPhone in the rubble. Like he had all these books and he had an iPhone and as he walked out, he said to me, I found an iPhone, like that this is his childhood. But also one thing that struck me is that like in these, in these apartment buildings, people don't necessarily know each other or know who they are. But then after the bombing, people did know who one another were because they had to help each other with things. And then, it turns out when a building is destroyed that it has a history. One of the reasons you know that is that the same kind of bombing will destroy different kinds of buildings in different ways. So Soviet era, Soviet era panelaki, or Soviet era like built buildings that were put together from, um, from modules are very vulnerable to bombing, it turns out, whereas post, post 1990s buildings are generally less so. And you can you literally see that worked out before your eyes. Or another thing in this complex of buildings that was destroyed, one of them, it turns out, like this is something you would never have to know, but it turns out that one of them was built for survivors of the nuclear disaster in, in Chernobyl. And so they all came down um, and, and they got this building as a way of, of, of moving away from where they were. And that, but that history would never have come out without this, without this other event. When I went to the suburbs of, of Chernihiv, I mean, I, the villages around, um, I, I talked to a woman who had five Russian soldiers in her, in her house, in her basement. And, um, and I said, okay, they're Russian soldiers, but like, where were they actually from? You know, were they Russian? Or they were, were they some, and she, no, they were, you know, they were from Bashkiria and, and from Tatarstan. I think maybe one of them was, was Russian from Russia. He was from Siberia. And they had a geography, right? 
they had a notion that this was that Ukraine was Russia. But it's a funny kind of geography because they're from so far away. You know, they're from thousands of miles away in some cases. And there she is, and they're all speaking Russian together. And, you know, she's a native Russian speaker. She was talking to me in Russian. Um, and they're telling her what Russia is and that she's in Russia, right? And there's something very strange about that, but that's their, like, that's, that's their deep geography. And there's, and there's something about it which seems to, which seems to really matter. I'm going to leave you with the last example, which I'm, which I'm sure you've probably already thought of, um, which, is, um, which, is, which is Kiev itself. So the way we think about cities often has to do with particular things that happen in those cities or in those neighborhoods. Like Vanze might not mean anything to you, but in, in Vanze is where a famous plan was made for the extermination of the, of, of the remaining Jews of Europe. And it's, it's, a, it's a part of Berlin. And so you, you cannot, once you know that, you can't hear Vanze and not think about that. Or Vichy, right? So Vichy in France is, I mean, there's nice soda water and everything, but it's a spa town, but it's also where the collaborationist government was, had its capital in the, during the Second World War. And so Vichy means that, right? It's very hard to take that away from Vichy. I would suggest that there's going to be a little something around Kiev like that, um, but in a positive sense, because Zelensky stayed, right? If Zelensky had left, many things I think would be different in the world and in our minds and in this class probably, but he stayed and I think that makes Kiev mean something different than it would have, than it would have otherwise been. In other words, I'm trying to suggest that these, this deep geography, although it's real, is also, it's also fungible, it's, cha it's, 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 it's changeable. It can, be, it can be altered, it can be altered by human action. Um, I'm thinking in particular about the night, a couple of nights into the war where he made the selfie video where he said, you know, um, President Tut, right, I'm here. You know, and then he goes on, my advisors are here, we're all here, we're all right here. And he was, he was countering Russian propaganda, which is said he had fled. That's part of it. But also, you know, he was saying, I'm here, I'm going to stay, I'm, 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 re I'm reassuring people, right? And this is, just, this, is just my, this is my last example of the point that maybe places and people aren't so interchangeable, right? That it matters a great deal that when he said, I am here, the buildings behind him were Kiev and not Lviv and not Warsaw. Right, that everyone in Kiev, when he said "I am here," could recognize where he was in 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 in, in Kiev, um, and that you know that "I'm here" was also the counter to a different kind of a different kind of deep geography, because at the moment when he said that, there still were bombs falling in Kiev, which were meant for him, and there were still groups of assassins moving towards Kiev, or actually inside the city of Kiev who were meant to kill him. And they were operating under a different deep geography, you know, deep geography which goes something like this. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't have to invent this because it's what Putin said in, 19, in 2021, 2022, that Russia and Ukraine have always been one place. And the people who say that Ukraine is a different place, they are somehow exotic. They somehow come from the outside. They're Habsburgs, they're Poles, they're Europeans, they're Americans. And therefore, anyone who says that there's a Ukraine, there's something flawed about that person. They don't belong there. They simply need to be removed. Um, and we'll remove them lexically by calling them Nazis or whatever it takes. But we're also going to remove them physically because if we remove them physically, then the rest of the Ukrainian people will go along with us and the war will be over. That is a kind of deep geography, right? And that deep geography 
that deep geography animated the attempt to take Kiev um, and, and, and to kill this person. So I, I had a lot of time, I had time to think about that because if you're visiting the president, um, it takes a long time to get there, obviously, because like they lead you here and they lead you there and then you're never gonna find your way out. You know, they lead you here, they, it's all dark and confusing and there are lots of checkpoints and there are lots of barriers and things. And so it gets you to think, well, how important is it actually that this person is right here? as opposed to another person right here, or this person being, being, being somewhere else. Um, so, so the deep geography is important. That was, that, was the point of this. that was the point of this. But also, um, the, the deep geography can be changed. The deep geography can be changed by, by action and by experience and by renaming. And I was thinking about that, uh, thinking about that as well, that you know, the, the, I, was there during, I was there during this last, this, this Kharkiv counteroffensive when the Ukrainians took back almost all of Kharkiv. And of course, that means that Kharkiv Oblast now means something different than it did a few days ago. And for the, for the men and women who were involved in that offensive, it's going to mean something different to them as well. And that, all, and that the way, you know, the fact that so many Ukrainians have had to move during this war, right, for bad reasons, um, Four million deported to Russia, um, well over 10 million crossed a Western border and, and, and come back. People inside the country, well over half the population has moved in one way or another. And that moving is associated with the changing of, of meanings. And, and sometimes it's associated um, with a changing of meanings in a positive sense. This is just, this is the very last thought. But I was really struck I mean, I'm not trying to make a happy story of this because, of course, it's not a happy story. But I was really struck by how, when people talked about all of this movement, whether it was the president himself or whether it was some of the soldiers I talked to or whether it was some of the people in villages that I talked to, when they talked about all this movement, they, they had interpretations of it. That, like, this in some way shows who we are, right? The fact that we, the fact that we, the fact that we you know, went away and came back uh, the fact that we um, were, were able, or have already, re, you know, a lot of people have already rebuilt their houses, you know, the, the fact that we rebuilt, the fact that we got back to Kharkiv, right, the fact that Zelensky stayed, that these things say something about us, about who we are. So, like, where we can be, we can be pushed, we can be pulled, but then where we choose to be in the end says something about, says something about us, that we choose to fight this war, that we choose to help the people who are fighting this war, um, that we choose to make it through somehow says something about us, right? And so in that sense, like this thing that people are talking about is the formation of a nation, I think is not quite right. The nation was already there. But how people think about their nation, in particular how, what they think it means to be free um, and, and, and what it's worth sacrificing about, you can also connect that to space. In fact, I guess my point would be you almost have to connect it to space. It's hard to imagine people having a story about themselves which involves risk and values, which doesn't also in some way involve space. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Thank you. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.